We left off. Where did we leave off? I don't even know. What, what story was that? Uh, the commandment so we, against intoxicants. Okay, 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 good. So, the story, our parasha opened up. He already has a question before you continue. Uh, let me, oh, let's, just, let's just introduce the parasha. The parasha opened up. <laughs> Wait, one second. Yeah, we're on Shemini. Yeah. The parasha opened up with the, the continuation for, to... Yeah. For the record, it was pointing at me, Steve. <laughs> for the record. Yeah, so, <laughs> for yeah, it was Steve. Okay, for the parasha opened up by Hibayom Shemini on the eighth day. We said it was the eighth day of parashat, of what started in parashat Sav. What started in parashat Sav was the inauguration of the Mishkan from the perspective of the Kohanim. Now, we've already seen the inauguration of the Mishkan from the perspective of the construction, of the actual building of it. That's how we got into Korbanot in the first place. The reason we started talking about Korbanot and Parashat Vayikra was because right before Parashat Vayikra, we inaugurated the Mishkan for the construction. Now that we introduced the Korbanot as a result of having the, the Mishkan inaugurated, at the end of the process of introducing Korbanot, we discussed who is going to bring the Korbanot, and that was the Kohanim. And then once we spoke about the Kohanim, we, we told the story of that same inauguration that happened in Parashat Pikudeh. We told the story from the perspective of the Kohanim. We it, chronologically we, we are in the same exact place as we were in Parashat Pikudeh. We haven't moved. Okay. So it, and then and then our parasha opens up with the eighth day of that process of inaugurating the Mishkan from the perspective of the Kohanim. And what do I mean by the perspective of the Kohanim? I mean in terms of which korbanot were brought in order to inaugurate the Mishkan. So for example, in the first seven days, there were three korbanot brought by the Kohen exclusively. And then on the eighth day, as we saw, if you look at the previous Shurim, there were more korbanot that were brought, and some were for the Kohen, and some were for the people. Okay? For the, for the, for the Kohen, there was a khatat and olah, and then for the people, there was a khatat, olah, and shulamim. There were two olot and two shulamim. Okay? And that was all of the korbanot that were part of the inauguration. Now, why did we not speak about these inauguration in Parashat, this, these korbanot in Parashat Pekudeh? Because we hadn't learned about kor, korbanot yet. We only introduced the korbanot that were brought as the process of the inauguration once we learned what the different types of korbanot are and what they meant. So that's how we found ourselves here. Now, on that same eighth day, the Torah then took a break from telling the story. Well, not really a break, but it gives us what happened on that eighth day as well. And it tells us of the tragedy of the death of Aharon's kids, Nadab and Avihu. The story went that they brought a foreign fire. They brought a type of ketoret that was not requested of them. And as a result of that, despite the fact that it was a very happy day, they were burnt and they got burnt. They got burnt by God. And they died on the spot. And then uh, there was a whole back and forth between Moshe and Aaron. Moshe telling Aaron, this is how we know they were great people. Because God only, he judged them to a very high standard. Because he only will punish someone to this extent if the person is, is demanded of that person a lot. And you only demand a lot from great people. So Moshe says, they're great people. And for that reason... Uh, that's why they were killed And he tries to console Aaron Aaron remains silent By Dom Aaron The famous response of Aaron To the tragedy Is to be quiet and I think that's a lesson for, for What Aaron doesn't do Is react While he is emotional Naturally he was very emotional 
okay? And he doesn't react while he's emotional, which is, a, which is an impressive thing, okay? So, and that's a lesson. When tragedy strikes or when something that is going to cause a lot of emotional distress strikes, it may be smart to just stay quiet until two, three days have passed and you could respond with a level head. So that seems to be what Aharon does. Um, it took a lot of control, okay? And then Moshe told the cousins of these boys, or the cousins actually of Aharon, to remove these boys from the camp. And there are two opinions. There's the, the common opinion is that all of this happened in public, in the eye of Bnei Israel. Immediately once these boys die, Moshe told Aharon and his other sons that you should not be mourning for them because this is a happy day. And we don't want to detract from the happiness of the day. So don't go into mourning all of a sudden because then that will cause Bnei Israel to go into mourning and that will bring God's anger upon the people. Uh, there are two opinions as to, as to... The common opinion again is that they died in public. But when reading the text, I thought that it could be that they didn't even die in public, that they died you know, in the privacy of the Mikdash. And whenever the text tells us that they were removed from the, from the, the camp, it says they were, they were removed with their clothing. Yes. It could be that they were removed, meaning even with their faces covered. It for sure, it tells us that they were intact, but it also may tell us that they were removed, they were removed meaning with, with cloth on top of them, so nobody saw who it was. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if Bnei Israel even knew what was going on in the Mikdash. But whatever it is, Moshe put like, he basically put like a gag order on, on that situation so that it doesn't turn the whole day of the inauguration of the Mishkan into a day of complete mourning. And that's where we got up to. Now we did discuss a little bit what was the sin? How could it be that what they did was so bad that would have caused them to be killed on the spot? And we said to understand the sin that they made, you have to know the context of what we know of these two boys before. These two boys, Nadab and Abihu, were featured with the Zikinim, with the elders of Israel, when Moshe went up the mountain at the end of Parshat Mishpatim. And the Torah tells us there, as you remember, and we've discussed this at length over there, that when Moshe went up, these people also got Nebuah. And it says, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet were like sapphire stones. And it was like the sky in terms of its clarity. And they saw God in the spirit of prophecy. And they ate and they drank. And we saw that that was probably a, a criticism of them. Now it says over there that God did not send his hand to kill them. Okay, He did not send his hand to kill them right there. But... It seems like they overstepped their bounds because what we do know about the, about Har Sinai in general was that the command that we heard over and over and over was what was the number one command of Har Sinai? What is that? Just take your shoes off and don't eat. Yeah? Uh, no, the the, mo- the command that we heard over and over was do not approach the mountain. Yeah. Stay far away from the mountain. That was in order to if you touch the mountain, you're gonna die. Whoever touches the mountain will die, and that was because. There is a certain level of reverence that must, you must have when you are experiencing nivuah. If your nivuah takes you to the place where you feel overly comfortable with God, then that turns into, that, that will cause you to start losing respect for God as opposed to gaining respect for God. And, and we said God is described as, His presence is described as either being in a cloud or in a fire. Now the cloud is because God is, is always shrouded in mystery. But the fire is because when we are approaching God, we always have to tread carefully because an approach that's too close can cause one to be burnt. 
Nadav and Aviyu were part of the group of people who treaded too close that first time. And they ate and they drank while experiencing this nivuah by the mountain. But, at that point, God did not kill them yet. Maybe He gave them an extra chance. But now this is the second time where they're doing something similar. Where, as we said, the Mishkan kind of represented like a re-manifestation of Har Sinai. And then God appears to the nation... And once again, Aaron's sons, they go close to God, they go into the Mishkan, and they bring a foreign fire. Now this foreign fire is the equivalent of them eating last time. It represents them getting too close, thinking that they could just do service as they wish, without following the exact guidelines of God. And that was their sin. Their sin was getting too close to God, feeling too comfortable with God, and then using that level of comfort to try and change the service. Now, there's one more thing to point out, is that Aharon may also be part of the reason for their death. And that's because when the Jewish people came to Aharon and they said, we, where is Moshe? Uh, we, 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 uh, who is going to lead us? Aharon also kind of changed... Did Aharon, when he was instrumental in making the golden calf, was his goal to cause the Jewish people to serve the calf? No. His, his, the defense of Aaron is that they just needed an intermediary between them and God. Moshe was the first one. So let's use a calf instead. They still wanted to serve God. The calf was just an intermediary to the service of God. So Aaron's mistake also in serving, in, in, in being instrumental in the golden calf, may also be part of that same sin of taking the service of God and then manipulating it to our whim. Now finally, to close this circle of, of thought, what's, what's the danger of specifically changing the service of God, specifically in the Mishkan? Why is it so bad to do extra korbanot that are not commanded of us? You're empowering the people more than they should be empowered. Then they start believing themselves. Everybody's okay. gonna start different. Everybody's gonna do whatever they think is better. So that's what I think. It's I think it's part of the same reason we've discussed very often how there it's forbidden to bring bamot. It's forbidden to bring korbanot if it's not in the mishkan. We said that very early on. It was actually the one of the first commandments we got after our experience at Har Sinai. And we said the reason for that is if you decentralize the worship, then slowly it can morph into. Every man for himself, and then could worship, it could morph into other types of worship, like worship of other gods. So, of all places, the Mishkan service, of all places, needs to be the most controlled. If the Mishkan service, in which we're, we're trying to follow to the letter what God commands us, is all of a sudden, it also proliferates into each man doing exactly whatever he, whatever he wants, then taken to the extreme, that turns into each man serving whatever God he wants. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that we were trying to avoid in the story of Nadav and Abiyu. So these are all reasons for the death of Nadav and Abiyu, and it, all, it, it stems from this fundamental philosophical idea of when you try to get too close to God in an unwarranted way, you will be burnt by that fire. Okay? Good. Do we know how old they were? No. Do you have any idea? I, I, I don't I mean, have any idea. It could be that they're... They were in their teens, they were in the 30s. No, I think they were in their 30s. I don't know, you'd have to know when they were born. I don't think we know when they were born. You know, I assume if they were in their teens, you can say, okay, they were made an example. But if we were in the 30s, 40s, then they actually made, you know what I'm saying? They did something wrong. You think if they were in their teens, then it is... Hashem wanted to make an example. Okay. Because I, I don't... 
you're not. I don't think you have a responsibility when you're in your. When you're that young. I don't know how old they were. I don't know. I mean, we know Aharon is in his eighties. So, but it depends when he was because we know marriage in those times. It's hard to tell when when they got married. They're older because they were going to become. They were. They wouldn't go up the mountain if they didn't. Yeah, and also they were this. They were going to succeed Aharon. Yeah. So they have to have a certain age. It couldn't right. be just children. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I don't know how old they were. Yeah. But, but are, are, are you following? You are you following? So, so that, that was so far. All we did so far was summarize what we did during the week. Yes. I think we pretty much said all of that already in the previous classes. But it's just very important to follow the progression from here on in. Here's a very good question. Yes. yes. Uh, who, who's first? No, please. You made a point about getting too close, being dangerous to get too close to yeah. the shop. Yeah. What about getting too far away? Because there's a point in the story that says, don't add two bones of crack. So, but, but you never see an example of getting too far away. Yes, that's when you do have a rock. You do, on the road, you get far away from I, I, yeah, I, I would, so, road. no, the reason I, uh, I'm, it's a good point. Where do we see, they didn't hear the question. oh, the question is, I'm focusing so much on the idea of getting too close to God and then getting burnt by that closeness, by that level of comfort that's unwarranted by, by a being that should be revered as opposed to, to, for you to become comfortable. Uh, the question is, where do we see distance as a problem in the Torah. And I'm, I'm just thinking, I, I, feel, I have a feeling that, that's, that this goes without saying. Meaning the whole Torah is built on the idea that we should get close to God. The whole point is to follow His precepts and to be Kadosh, the same way God is Kadosh. I don't know if the Torah has to tell us that distance from God is a problem because that's the whole point of the Torah. The whole point is to teach us how to get close. The real concern is even when you are keeping the Torah, you could make bad mistakes. But if you're not keeping the Torah and you're already distant, I think it goes without saying that that's a problem. I don't know if the Torah has this. I think the fact that the Torah gives us the mitzvot in and of itself is a, is a basically it's telling us will. not to keep, not it's to stay distant. Freedom of will. Korah, you know, that, uh, you know, what happened to him, but I don't think it's necessarily an example of just getting too far away. No, the Korah was more of an example of rebellion against authority that God had vested in someone. Um, and the do not add and do not subtract, I don't know if that's necessarily, I don't think in that case subtracting is getting too far from God and adding is getting closer to God. I think they both just represent deviations from the script, kind of the same way. Of is it, I, I think, I think really the idea of being too far from God is just implicit in everything that we were talking about, in all the commandments. So, yes, question. question. So the, the, the sin was to, to bring a foreign power. Yeah. It was doing more than was necessary. Yeah. So how do you explain, like in today's age, how we go to Canada, so, like after Ishtabah, some people get up for Baruch. Baruch Some people don't get up. You know, some people you ask a rabbi, they say, you don't have to get up. But it's a minhag. Mm -hmm. Okay, the same minhag, you can see it in other parts of our tefillah. Some people do things and they don't do others. The Ashkenazim, they don't say the Kohanim. We say the Kohanim on a weekly basis. So, I'm not saying what's wrong or right. I'm trying to understand. How do you explain that? Is there a relationship between yeah. that and this? So, that's a good question. I got this question yesterday. Oh. Do you know Mick Rubini? So he asked me this in Kenya yesterday. Yeah, Mike. He said, right. 
he, uh, the, the, it's, a, it's a good one. The question is, you're saying the whole point, the, your whole, the whole kind of uh, theory we have to explain this is that they added too much in the service. But don't we always add tefillot? Don't we do that ourselves? Yes. We, every day we have a different tefillot. Uh, we, we, uh, and forget the difference in minhagim, because that could just be explained by different in tradition. Every, like, uh, every community will have their own minhagim. But don't we add tefillot for sick people? We open the echal and add more tefillot and more tefillot. Is that not going too far and adding things to the service of God? So, I don't think it is. Um, there is something particularly concerning about adding things in the mikdash rather than in tefillah. Tefillah is like service of, of the heart. There's no, to be honest, if you look in the Torah, the commandment for tefillah is not given a certain time in a certain place. In fact, according to one opinion, there is really no mitzvah to pray three times a day. It's just you pray whenever you want. It's just to pray. And so tefillah, if you're adding in tefillah, it doesn't necessarily represent going outside the bounds of service. I think the, the problem in doing too much in service typically comes more in the ritual aspects. When I have to bring a specific type of ketoret, some incense, or a korban, a korban that's not necessary. A certain animal. Or if I bring a two lulavs instead of one lulav, or I bring two etrogs instead of one etrog. Ritual service, it's very dangerous to change. But when it comes to tefillah, service of the heart, the heart just represents your relationship with God. And the person is encouraged to do as much of that as he can. You know, it, The tefillah that would accompany a korban could be as long as the person wanted. It is the korban itself that must be brought in a very specific way. Now why is that? Why is the ritual service more dangerous? It could be because the ritual service could... There is more of a danger of ritual service morphing into Abu Dazara. Then there is, as you're touching it, and, and to be honest, because other pagan gods also had types of korbanot. So that could be a very dangerous thing. When it comes to the modern day service of tefillah and things like that, I think more is better. I don't think it falls into this category. I don't know if I'm giving a good answer, but, but that, that's how I would, I would go there. Is it satisfying at all? Or? No, it's not. No. Sorry. There. You could keep asking and see if you can get somewhere where you're satisfied. Yeah. Um, no disrespect, brother. No, no, I'm sorry. Let's start the class now. No, when you pray, when yeah. you're praying, you're like talking to Hashem. You're direct, one-to-one. But when you're doing the korban, korbanot, you're taking something. You're not talking to Hashem. You're taking something which is physical, and you are now doing something with it for Hashem. If you start changing that physical part of it that you're touching, but, it becomes dangerous. But we're taught that today there's no sacrifices. Our yes. sacrifices are our prayers. But, yes. So then the prayers are, you're doing more prayers, you're doing more sacrifices. The prayers is, you're trying to... That's what I no, mean. to be honest, yeah. to be honest, if you really want to get down, I mean, you, we can get into technicalities by answering this question. I'm allowed to bring a korban, typically, whenever I want. We, one of the types of korban we, we talked about at the very, very beginning was the korban nidava, the voluntary offering, the korban ola that I bring whenever I want. Thanks. And for that reason, you could, you could also pray whenever you want. <clears throat> so in terms of bringing korbanot, there is, no, there is no isur to bring more korbanot. Within the framework of the korbanot, we are allowed to bring as many korbanot as we want. 
well, the real problem is when we bring korbanot outside the system. So we're allowed to bring as many korbanot as we want, but they have to be in the Mishkan or in the Mikdash. We could bring as many korbanot as we want, but we can't bring as many incense as we want. So there is room, even within the system of korbanot, there is room for a person to do more and to try to relate to, relate to God more. The problem is when they go outside the system that was created and they do things in a way that's alien to the system, that's when you have problems. So now if in the tefillah, if I want to do shmonai, so t- technically you're allowed to do a tefillah nidava. Not, not a lot of people know this, but you are allowed to pray the shmonai more than three times in a day. It's called a tefillah nidava. And it's, it's actually the parallel to the korban ola nidava that we spoke about in, in the book of Vayikra. The real problem would be when I take the 19 brachot, which were what were established for us, and I add a 20th. That is a problem. Because that is serving God outside the system that was created. That is deviating from the script. But as long as I'm following the script, even within the script, there is room for a person to do as much as they want. Or as they could work on themselves as much as they want. You're not satisfied yet, so uh, we're going to have to no, keep this as an open discussion. No, I you know, I just... I don't want to. I don't want to drag the flag. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is. There's no end. This. Yeah, we could have this discussion. Yeah. All right. Now the next piece. The next piece. Pasuk eight uh, in chapter ten is. We're going to quickly speak about it. Is uh, I'm just going to read the pasukim inside because it's a short paragraph. I God spoke to Aharon specifically. Aharon alone saying, "Yain veshechar al tesht, wine and uh, strong drink. Do not drink." You and your sons with you. When you come to the oil moed, so that you do not die. This is an eternal law for your generations. Right after what happened. To separate between what is sacred and what is not sacred. Or the holy and the common. And what is impure and what is pure. And also, and also to teach the Jewish people. All of the laws that God spoke to you in the hands of Moshe. Basically, to sum up this paragraph, God tells Aharon and his sons to not drink when they are doing service in the Mikdash because they have two or three very, very important duties. The first duty, obviously, is to bring, is to do the service in, in the Mikdash, which you can't do intoxicated. The second service is that you have to be able to distinguish between what is holy and profane and what is impure and what is pure. And the third is that to teach the Jewish people. From here we see that one of the chief duties of the Kohanim was to be the instructors of the Torah. And because they are the ones who are the teachers of the Torah, they need to not be an example, but they need to have their mental faculties straight. straight. If they're intoxicated and you're trying to teach, not a good idea. Okay? So those are the reasons for, for why uh, they're not supposed to be intoxicated, their service in the Mikdash, they're needing to distinguish, and they, because they need to teach. Now why is this brought here? Why are we learning about the, in, the right prohibition after, of right, getting intoxicated right now? After, right after, because so for two reasons. There's one opinion that says that the sin of Nadav and Avihu, besides for just bringing, bringing an alien fire, was that they brought an alien fire while drunk, that would be a very simple explanation for why they died because they brought, they did service of God while they were drunk. And, uh, and because of that, it also tells us the prohibition of drinking right after that story to tell us that never let, don't let that ever happen again. 
Okay, that would be the interpretation number one. That's the more midrashic interpretation. The problem with that is that the Torah doesn't tell us that Nadav and Avi were drunk. drunk. It tells us the reason for their death, and that was because of the alien fire, not because of their drunkenness. So that would be more midrashic. The peshat, the more the simple but probably deeper expl- explanation of this whole thing, is that going back to our theory on Nadav and Avi breaking down boundaries that should have been in place. Is there any um, chemical that causes us to lose vision of of proper boundaries more than alcohol? No. If there's any chemical that that represents the quintessential uh, thing that will cause us to lose sense of a level of distance and respect between us and God or between us and anybody, it is alcohol. So because their sin was one of keeping distance, we're adding the prohibition of a Kohen drinking because that is that could be the number one uh, pitfall for a Kohen who is who doesn't want to fall into the same trap that Nadav and Aviyu fell. Okay, so that would be the more deeper but simpler explanation, probably. And that reason also Michal, they don't if only on a Tanit day. Yeah, for Tanit we do we only do Birkat Kwanim on Tanit. Why? Because we can assume that the Kwanim didn't drink. But yeah. <laughs> but on a regular day, we don't we don't do Birkat Kwanim because the assumption is that at lunch the Kohen may have drunk something. So, yeah. so being drunk, it just takes your focus off. God. For sure, not doesn't necessarily take your focus off God. It it blurs your sense of of separation, your sense of having proper boundaries. People only overstep their boundaries. People who are typically in control of themselves will only potentially overstep their boundaries if they are intoxicated. That's like the ultimate way of of. When you're, when you're, falling when you're nervous in something, when you're, uh, if you drink, you get, uh, you get relaxed. Uh, Your you inhibitions know, the guard is down. The guard is down. There's yeah, a, you lose the sense of Yeah. There's a parallel here, you know, like when Hashem went up to Mount Sinai, and the people needed to have, a, 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 they needed to have somebody, a leader, somebody to follow, and then Hashem gave them the Mishkan to have a place to worship. Yeah. Same thing here, first time, first service, so they... Hashem has given us a solution for a problem. Mm-hmm. So now he, re- I guess Hashem, you can say, saw the problem of doing too much or doing something that's wrong. So he says he's warning the people right now all of a sudden, okay, by the way, also, if you drink, it's a problem. You can't drink while you're doing this. Clean, it's he's, cleaning the act. He's, he's, he's giving us a solution for not this, overstepping. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. It's like parallel. Every time we like, he, he gives us something and then... We make a mistake, he said, okay, now you got to Yeah, it. it's almost yeah. like we wait for the mistake, yes. and then you implement the, the solution. Yes. So the mistake of the golden calf, you implement the, the, the mishkan. mishkan. Yes. The mistake of overstepping your boundaries, you implement the prohibition of drinking yes. Right. Yes. in the mikdash. Like a father. He will tell right. you, you know, you got burned yes, in yeah, this time, I, I like, I'm going to tell like you, yes. Now, one yes. pasuk I want you, everyone to keep in mind is pasuk 11, okay? Their job is ulhorot et bene Israel. To instruct the Jewish people, oh sorry, wrong, wrong pasuk, the, pre- the previous pasuk, pasuk Yud, the 10th pasuk. The job of the Kohen is to separate between what is sacred Secret and what is common. Yes. And what is impure, contaminated, and what is pure. Keep in mind this duty of the Kohanim, because that will then become the corners, this pasuk will become the cornerstone for a lot of the laws that are going to come up after this. It's very important to see the, the progression of the text, so why the text is putting things in the places it's putting. The, this pasuk is going to be really the starting point to a whole new slew of laws. But before we do that, we have to go back to the story of the Mishkan, 
and just finish up what, what just occurred because we're still on the day of the eighth day. We're still in the process of. He's the, very confused between the speaking between Aaron and Steve. I know we've Aaron had this question Moses. before. So the one the one to Aaron is the reason this this law is specifically stated to Aaron is because it is a law that is exclusively to the Kohanim. The law of not drinking in the Mikdash is exclusively for the... I mean, the whole reason for it is because you are the teachers, you are the people who are going to tell the distinctions. So that would explain why Aharon is the, the soul, priests, the is the one who is told about this exclusively. But uh, let's not get into it too much. Um, well, my question was later, it's coming. Yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll, get, yeah. we'll get later. Uh, now the next piece, the next piece brings us back to the story of the eighth day. Okay? So last we left off, Aharon and Moshe come out and they bless the people. The only thing that Aharon had not done is A, eat of the korbanot shilamim, eat of the, of the offerings of shilamim of the people, and B, eat the flesh of the korban khatat of the people. Okay? That's what we've not done yet, so that's what we're going to go and complete on this next segment. God spoke to Moshe and Aharon and Elazar and Itamar, the remaining sons, take the mincha. What is that? Sorry, sorry, Moshe, Moshe, sorry, sorry. Moshe said to all of them, take from the mincha. The mincha was brought with the korban shelamim, I think. Okay? Eat that portion because it is your portion. Eat it in the holy place. Eat it in the, in the courtyard of the Mishkan. Okay? Because this is what I commanded. Now from the korban shelamim, you should take the chest. You have to take the right thigh. Eat it in a place that is, that is, uh, that is um, pure. You and your family with you. Because this is your portion that was given to you from the shalamim of the, of the Jewish people. Take the right thigh and the chest. And it should be eaten uh, out of or, or in place, not really in place of, but with the burning of the fats. This piece should now be eaten. Okay, that's what this next pasuk says. And will be for you and your sons as an eternal portion as God commanded. So, the shilamim and the mincha are eaten. Okay. Now the next piece. What is left? I said there were th- there were there were two korbanot that were brought. There was a shilamim, and then there was a chatat of the people. Now the chatat, the flesh is eaten by the kohen. The shilamim, only the thigh and the chest is eaten by the Kohen. So Moshe tells them, eat of the shilamim. And also, obviously, they have to eat of the khatat. And first he tells them to eat of the shilamim, and apparently they did. But then, the khatat, which we, if you remember in our previous class, they had never, we never heard of, of Aaron eating of that khatat of the people. And then Moshe seeked out this khatat offering, and he sees they burnt it. Meaning they burnt the flesh. So there's nothing to eat. He gets very angry at Elazar and Tamar, the, the remaining sons. Why didn't you eat the khatat in the, in the holy place? This was supposed to be sacred. This was given to you to carry the burden of sin of the people to be an atonement for them before God. Behold, the blood of this korban was not brought into the Mishkan. And because the blood was not brought into the Mishkan, the rule was 
Remember the rule by Chataot? You probably don't, but, but if the blood is brought in, then the Korban is, not bur- is, is burnt in its entirety. But if the blood is not brought into the Mishkan and wiped on the, the, on the golden altar, yes. then it is eaten by the Kohen. And Moshe says, by, by all of our rules that we've established, you should have eaten this Korban Chatat. Okay? So, why didn't, you do, why didn't you do this? And the Pasuk 19, Aaron responds, By the Ber Aaron and Moshe, Aaron says to Moshe, He said, Behold, the people today have brought in their chataot, their sin offerings, and their olah, their burnt offerings to God. And to me, And then to me, this travesty had occurred, or this, this uh, tragedy occurred. And if I were to have eaten the chatat, if I were to eaten, if I were to have eaten of the portion, of the sin offering of the people, would it have been appropriate in the eyes of God? Moshe hears this and he accepts the reasoning. Very, very cryptic passage. And most people don't understand the passage because they kind of forget about the whole process of the korbanot. So let me summarize one more time so we understand. Okay, the eighth day, on the eighth day, what had happened is to inaugurate the Mishkan, we needed to bring five korbanot. It was seven total korbanot. Uh, we had seven total korbanot, but there were three types of korbanot. Okay, there was a korban chatat that Aharon brought. A korban chatat is a sin offering. So Aharon and the family of the Kohanim, yeah. they needed to purify themselves or get atonement for their sins. They do that successfully. Done. No more chatat of the Kohanim. Eat that or just burn that? No, just burn. They burnt it completely. Okay. okay? But any korban chatat, sin offering that's brought by the Kohen, the Kohen himself can't partake in it. Okay. He can only partake if it's brought by others. Okay? So they brought that, it was for themselves, they burnt it completely. Then they brought an olah offering, an, an offering that's burnt in its entirety. That represents them subjugating themselves to God or, or showing their reverence to God. They brought that for themselves. Successful, no problems. Then they had three more korbanot left. They had a chatat of the people. They had an olah, a, a sin offering for the people to bring atonement for the people. They had an olah offering, a, a burnt offering for the people. And then they had a shilamim offering, which was a celebratory offering for the people. Now of the three offerings, a korban shilamim can be eaten by the owners and is shared by the kohen as well. And that was what we read previous to this. On this in that previous text which we read was Moshe telling Aharon, go to those shilamim offerings, those celebratory offerings that you brought and let, obviously let the people eat their portion, but you take the thigh and the chest. Okay? Successful, no problems. Now what is left? They had, again, for the people, they had a sin offering, a burnt offering, and a celebratory offering. The burnt offering gets completely burnt. The celebratory offering was shared between Aharon, the people, and the, and the altar, successful. Now, what was the only thing that was left? The, the first offering, which was the sin offering of the people. Okay? That sin offering of the people, the people bring, and the Kohen partakes in the meat. That same day, instead of partaking in the meat, Aharon burnt it completely, like a burnt offering didn't eat it, like, or almost like a, like a sin offering that a Kohen brings, okay? And then Moshe goes to me, he says, why didn't you eat of the Korban Chata? Why didn't you eat of the sin offering that people brought? It is your duty to eat of the sin offering of the people. And then Aharon's reasoning was, what does it mean 
when the Kohen partakes in the sin offering of the people? What does it mean when the Kohen is eating of the flesh of the sin offering of the person? It represents the fact that the Kohen is now in a position of getting atonement for the, per- for the person who's bringing it. You know, one of the reasons Aaron has to bring his own korban first is so he can purify himself so that he can be a good representative of the person bringing the korban khatat. And then he partakes in it because he's kind of like elevated, you know. He's allowed to partake in it because he's not the one who's sinning. It is the person who had sinned who needs to bring the sin offering. So Aaron partakes in it because he's on like a higher level. So he can eat of that sin offering. Now, Aaron says to himself, on that day, on this eighth day, my sons die today. I don't feel like I'm in a position where I'm superior to the children of Israel, where I can eat of their sin offering, which essentially says, I am in a position to bring you your atonement. I'm not in a position to bring anybody their atonement. I need atonement myself. There's something I did wrong myself. So how can I eat of the flesh of that korban, which brings atonement for the Jewish people? I'm I'm not worthy of of doing that. So he said, I'm just going to burn it. I'm just going to burn the whole thing. Would that change your comment for the people? I I don't know. I don't know. God has his own uh, calculations for when he's going to bring atonement. But that was Aharon's reasoning. And then Moshe, he hears the reasoning and he says, you know what, I accept. I understand where you... I don't know if Moshe agreed, but he accepted it. He said, it's fair reasoning. A person who's in this kind of distress... Also. Right, but, but a person who's in this kind of distress who doesn't see himself fit to partake in the sin offering of the people, it stems from humility. And it seems like that reasoning was acceptable to Moshe. And that's really the, what, what's happening in the story. Was that, was that a clear layout of, of everything? So, yeah, it was very good. So the theory that they were sacrificed because they were perfect examples. So I don't know. The two sons, they were sacrificed. They were, they were, they were taking so that, Hashem because of, as a sacrifice. So that goes out the window if we follow this. Not necessarily right? because that was something Moshe said to con- console Aharon. I was just consoling. Now Aharon, from his perspective, is I don't think my sons died because I'm so perfect. I think they died because I sinned. And he, he feels something. like a sinner. He feels like he's something. Yeah, he yes, feels like he's not in a position so, to bring atonement for this. He was very insecure because of the golden cup. And, yeah, exactly. And we he also, has a big problem with and, the golden and, cup. And one of the yes. things, if you look very closely at the text, you may see some insecurity on Aharon's part. For example, when Aharon was first about to start the process of doing these korbanot of the day, Moshe says to him, Kirav el hamizbech, approach the mizbeach. Now, the Chachamim, the, the, the rabbis tell us that he's telling him that because Aaron was hesitant to approach the Mizbeach in the first place. Who am I? I did, the, I did the golden calf. Who am I to now be the person to bring atonement for the people? Actually, Rabbi Biton spoke about this beautifully on Friday night. He said that Moshe then says to Aaron, just the opposite. You are the, you are the one to bring atonement for the people because you sinned. Only someone who has experience in sin can understand what it means to sin and can really relate to the people who are in a position of needing atonement. So it's actually Aharon, being that he sinned with the golden calf, actually became the perfect person to bring. But, but you know, the person who is in that position doesn't always feel confident enough to, to take upon that responsibility. This is a great treat. Yeah. I, was always, I was always thinking that the reason that the Kohen has to eat the portion that people bring is because that is the way for the people to pay Kohen for praying, uh, you know, for their soul. Yeah, I, I think that, I think that's and, true. And in this case, 
Okay, Aaron, what he's saying is that, okay, because of what happened, okay, I don't want to take a pay from people. I, I like what you're saying. You know? Very, very I nice. I don't want to take a pay, you know? So, so Mr. Kimin is saying... for them without getting paid. Mr. Kimin is... I like this a lot. He's saying the khatat portion, the portion of the sin offering that people bring, that the Kohen is allowed to partake of, that piece that they eat, the flesh that they eat, is a payment for them, almost like a payment for bringing atonement for me. You know, I bring the thing to the, to the Kohen, and I pay him for, for executing my atonement, for, for making the atonement happen. And then the person, so, so what does that implicitly say? It says that the Kohen is in a position to bring me atonement. He's in a way better than me. He's more pure than me. So I pay him for getting me up to his level in a way. In a way. Now the Kohen who's insecure about being able to bring atonement for you because he has insecurities about his own sin may feel guilty in taking that payment. And that seems to be what Aharon's reasoning is here. So yes, I, I really... That, you stated it, it. He made it much easier to understand. Yes, I think that was the, the perfect uh, explanation for it. Okay. I also want to say that it's beautiful, the fact that he's insecure. I, I think it is beautiful, yeah. Because just the fact that he's, there's no arrogance there, it's all humility. Just insecurity equals humility. Yeah. So that's a great lesson to see there. Even and it's a beautiful dynamic, yeah. especially you see it more in the Midrashim, between Moshe and Aharon. How Moshe is encouraging Aharon, saying, don't feel so insecure, you're fine. Right. And you see this a lot with, with people, uh, like people have like imposter syndrome. It's a very common like, psychological thing where people who are put in positions of authority or in positions of leadership, they often feel like they're completely inequipped. Um, who am I to take this position? Especially if his brother, if his now, older brother was the one in, from uh, the pers- in charge. Right, from the pers- <laughs> and, this is, and this is often completely unwarranted. People that takes it often, from the perspective of everybody else, a person is the best person that could lead them. But the leader himself or herself will have this imposter syndrome. It's a very common thing. It represents a certain level of humility. Okay, um, let's go. Let's go back to that pasuk we said. What was the duty of the Kohen in Pasuk 10 of chapter 10? It was to become pure. No, to, let's be first, very precise. First, to separate between what is holy sacred, sacred and what is, what is, yes. what is uh, common. common. common and what is impure and what is pure. pure. What, sep- what, what separate, what, when are we separating between pure, impure, this, that? What are the, what are the laws? Touch something that is dead. That's what we're going to discuss That's, now. Well, we introduced... Uh, yes, very we, we introduced... The Kohanim into the picture. And we, tell, we told the Kohanim that one of their duties is to teach us, the layman, what is pure and what is impure, what is, what is common and what is holy. So what you put in your mouth... The, next, the next piece of the Torah is going to go into two laws, two sets of laws. One is the laws of Kashrut, and one are the laws of Tumah and Tahara, laws of impurity and purity. When something makes a person impure, and when something is not impure. Okay, these laws are related. They're very they overlap in the language. You see a lot of overlap, um, but they're very very connected. The, all these laws, and the reason they're brought here, we could speculate. It's not exactly clear, but you could speculate. The first reason is what I said, because now that we brought the koanim, we introduced the koanim, and we told them that one of their duties is to teach the laws of what is pure and impure. Well, we have to know what. Let's give us the basics. Let's hear the let's hear the content. The second reason why the laws of purity and impurity are brought here and the laws of, of, of kosher and non-kosher kind of go alongside those laws of purity and impurity. The second reason is because we just completed the inauguration of the Mishkan. 
And what is the number one thing that would stop me from going to the Mishkan? If I, get, uh, if I become impure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So now that the Mishkan's inaugurated and the people are ready to go whenever they, they want. They have to know when they're impure. They have to know when they're impure and when they're pure. And in terms of the food, now the food part, eating non-kosher food doesn't make a person impure in the sense that it doesn't stop him from going into the Beit HaMikdash. But he's not. Okay. Well, te- technically it would, because, but not because of the non-kosher. It would because you necessarily touched a dead animal that was, that was impure. But the laws of purity of, of the food, the laws of eating kosher, are not as related to going into the Mikdash as they are our whole lives are geared towards serving God. Okay? And the way we sanctify our daily life is by controlling what we eat. By separating between what is pure and what is impure for us as, as people. We see ourselves as Jewish people as a mamlechet kohanim v'goy kadosh. As a kingdom of priests and holy nation. So the same way there are laws of what makes a priest or any layman impure for going in to the Mikdash in general, there are also laws in our daily lives that should be sanctified. Our daily lives that should be sanctified. There are laws for how we should act in our daily behavior. And the first set of those laws is how we eat. Okay? So that's kind of a summary of why we are now introducing the laws of kosher and the laws of purity and impurity. Again, it's all going to be mixed. So it's very kind of hard to separate between them. Yes. But that's it's going to be next week's parasha. Well, more. Yes. It's, it's, um, one thing I do want to point out. This is more with animals. Now, one thing I do want to point out is that when do we see the laws of holiness, purity, and impurity most commonly applied? In, in, in what realms of human behavior do we see these ideas of purity and impurity most commonly applied? In the realm of eating and in the realm of Sensual. Sexual behavior. Now, why is that? Why is it in the realm of eating and sexual behavior that we both see? Of them are desires. Because it's because, it's because they are both they're both animalistic. They're both desires. They're both innate desires. And the job, the really the fundamental job of kedusha, of holiness, is to train the human being to behave in a way that's above the animals. If you want to summarize the laws of kedusha in a word, it is. My behaviors that will allow me to behave above an animal. So for that reason, you'll see laws of Tuman Tara apply to, to food, to touching dead corpses, which is the most like materialistic thing. And they apply very often to death in general, and they apply to the sexual behaviors. All of the things that are very animalistic, very material, that do not, do not have any connection to the soul unless we connect them ourselves, those are the things that will, you will apply these laws of Tuma and Tahara, purity, impurity, and holiness to. Before we begin the laws of kosher, which we will have to summarize, um, let's go to the end. Pasuk 44 of chapter 11 is the summary of why these laws of kosher and purity are brought. And it kind of gives you a good sense of what I just said right now. Pasuk 44. Why am I telling you all of this, says God? Why did I just go through all the list of kosher animals and the laws of all, the, all these different types of things that are impure? The reason I did this is because Because I am Hashem your God. And you should be holy and you should separate yourselves because I am separate. 
And you should not make your souls impure with any crawling creature that roams the earth. Because I am God. Who takes you out of Egypt to be for you a God. You should be holy for I am holy. Okay? This was the law of the, of the animal and of the bird and all of the creatures that roam the earth. And all of, uh, sorry, that roam the waters and all the creatures that roam the earth. And it is your duty, Pasuk 47, to separate between. between what is impure and what is pure, and between the animal that it should be eaten, and between the animal that should not be eaten. Now, this is he's saying to everyone now. Uh, so now, uh, that's why I read this first. Because you see this as the bookend to the previous thing, which was the instruction to the Kohanim to separate between these things. Now also, the, also the people, the people are... To... Now the reason right. this was introduced is because the Kohanim instruct us, they guide us in how to separate, but it is all of our duties to separate between all of these things. So you see? That, when he says any teeming thing that creeps, is there a relationship between this and the serpent at the beginning? Um, I mean, it can make a lot of sense I, I, if, you, if you relate it to Maybe, it. maybe, but, but it's, it's one of a plethora of animals that are non-kosher. Yeah. So, so why did they select this one that is creepy? It almost sounds like a serpent. We can discuss it. There are reasons for it. We can discuss right. it. Um, well, let's, let's go back to the text and, and just try to tackle a little bit of the text. Okay. Um, well, we are now... Shishi. Yeah. Shishi. 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 11. Yeah, four-legged creatures that are, that are small. Now, four-legged creatures that are like animals, that are domesticated animals or... Insects. Yeah, four-legged creatures, when we refer to them, we're referring to like insect type of animals. Okay? Oh, or so ones that are... A serpent. A serpent is... is a, I, it's going to get so confusing. I, if this, this class was hard enough today already. All right, sorry. Uh, sorry. Let, let's try to go. I, um, I try to keep things very organized. So let's go in an organized way and, and learn the basic principles and then, you know, you branch tried. out. Okay. Um, so, by the Adonai Moshe Haron God speaks to Moshe and Aharon to tell them. Let's break down this pasuk for a second. Why is Aharon included? Because now he is the one who is going well, to be... Because, the, the, because we just said that Aaron's duty is going to be the teacher. The yes. Kohanim are to be the teachers of what is holy and what is holy. Moshe's position becomes small, slowly, right, slowly right, right, right. put on but, the But side. the key here is to understand that, that Aaron is to take an active role in the laws of purity and impurity. Because he is, he is the person who is to... To guard the temple and to guard the temple and purity. Also the next parasha is going to be the one who's going to decide if you have tzarat or not. Right, and that, that's and also true. But but what, again, become the police. You have to understand where all this is coming from. Why is Aharon the arbiter of holiness and unholiness, of impurity and purity? Because Aharon is the one who's guiding and guarding the temple. It is the person who guards the temple who it's with, it's his duty to educate the people on how they can make their approach to the temple without, in, in a way that's appropriate. He's the one who so any law that has to do with purity and impurity, laws of the temple, are going to be taught by Aharon. So in introducing the laws of kosher and impurity and impurity, Aharon is being told, Lemor Alehem, who is it to be told to? People. To all the Jewish people. Okay? So, uh, do you understand yeah, how yeah. we got to this topic, why we're on this topic, how it, we flow into this topic and everything. That's what my most, the, the goal that I want people to understand most is to start to see the Torah from a bird's eye view. 
Because a lot of people get lost in the Sukim and then they lose the progression of how the text is brilliantly laying out a system in a very organized way. Okay? So like Moshe was the two positions, Moshe and Aaron. Moshe was the leader. Yeah, he's like the political leader. Political leader. Political leader and the, the, the teacher, the more general teacher. And now slowly people chip away at his duties. You know, Aharon chips away at the duties that pertain to the Mikdash. Um, you're going to find Yehoshua chip away at his duty, or he had already done it, chip away at his duty for leading people out to battle. You know? Okay. The military. The military I'm not side. going to read the rest of this Tsukim inside. So let's just analyze the different types. We have a number, a number of different types. The first, the first category of kosher is going to be animals. We'll call them like mammals, I guess, but, but it's a specific type of mammal the, the, in the category, let's say, of chaya and bema would fall deer, goats, cows, um, lions. I, I don't know. I, I, you, you, you could picture the kind of animal we're talking about. These are things, uh, pigs, camels. This is where we proof, the proof of Torah. That right, right, right. comes here. Right. Uh, but but let's, uh, let's not even, I don't even have time to get into that, to be honest. One. Okay? One. One. To, to me, the proof of the Torah is its brilliance. Because the more you it's learn incredible. it, yeah. the, more, the more brilliant you realize it I is. Wow. And, and, and I want to close today's class with a very, very, very deep insight. That's one of those mind-boggling insights that I had recently. Um, so let's just quickly summarize these laws. And the first being that if you want to eat any of these larger animals that are, as we discussed, the two signs are that it's chew, it chews its cud and it has a split hoof all the way split. Okay? Reasoning, let's not get into. You could save that for another philosophical class. The next group would be, uh, the next group would be animals that are in the water. Animals that are in the water, any creature that's in the water, the only thing that may be eaten from anything that's in the water is going to be fish. And specifically within fish, it is those that have fins and scales. Okay? The next category are things that are prohibited that fly. And the things that, prohib- that are prohibited that fly are listed explicitly. Yes. Meaning yeah, it yeah. gives us a list, an exhaustive list of the birds that are prohibited. Everything else is okay. permitted. And then finally, the last group. Uh, and by the way, in that category of birds is also insects. And those are all prohibited. Okay? And the last category that is entirely prohibited are things that are called shratzim, which are things that roam around on the earth, that, have, uh, that, that are low, that live low to the ground. A lizard, this, that, a, a snake. These are all things that are part of that category. And that would be the final category of things that are prohibited. Okay? Yeah. Uh, what, what is that? Um, but, but and then jump a little bit there is a one exception yes. of a flying bird which we, all of them are prohibited there's one exception which is a locust yeah. it gives us an explicit list of the types of locusts that are permitted but a locust is the one exception of those small flying type things which we would call uh, insects which are permitted to be eaten that would be locusts today we don't have them unless you're temani there's your tradition right. all the birds that are not temani what is that? All the birds that are listed here they're all of them are not yeah exactly we, we eat a small fraction of what of what is uh, permitted yes ah, very small that is specified now giraffe is kosher but we don't eat it the second half of this the second half of this is the discussion of what is impure and what is pure. Now that's a completely different topic. Okay? What is kosher and what is non-kosher 
is a separate thing. Now, what is pure and impure is a separate thing. Depending on how it's dyed. What, and I'm going to give you a lot of this is hard to understand from the text. So I'm going yes. to give you I'm going to give you kind of the, the summary of the Torah Shabbat Peh, the, the oral tradition of, of what is impure and what is pure. Any of those larger animals, the, the larger animals that we said in the first category, if they are found dead on the street, they become impure. So if we touch the flesh, that's, that brings impurity. The way, to, salt, the way to, to get out of the impurity is to go to the mikveh and then wait till nightfall. You go to the mikveh in the day, when shikiyah comes or tzeta kochavim comes that night, yeah. you are pure. Now the next day you can go to the mikdash. Okay? Not, not mikveh for washing your body, for washing your clothes, the clothes that you were wearing. No, there are two. Okay? I, I, I don't even want to get into the nuances of the, of the halakha, but, but um, the general rule would be to, to go with your, with your flesh into the mikveh and to wait until nightfall, okay? Again, the first category of things that are impure are anything that's dead. Now, there is a nuance because when the animal is kosher and when you perform shechita, automatically the animal is not impure. Even the flesh of the animal that's dead is not, that's how we can eat of the animals, okay? But if the animal is non-kosher, let's say I decided to perform shechita on a pig, still the flesh is impure, okay? Because there's really no practical application of shechita on a pig, okay? So from that first category, we have animals that are dead, are all impure, except for animals that are kosher, in which if they were done with a proper shechita, they maintain their purity, even in death. For the rest of the creatures, there's practically nothing that is impure upon death. The only things that are impure upon death are the eight crawling creatures, which are delineated in the text, called the Shmona Shraksim. These are things like low-lying animals that crawl on the ground, like a mouse, maybe a lizard, and it's a bit of of a debate of what's included in this category. But these things as well, in their death, they generate Tum'ah. Nothing else generates Tum'ah. Yes. If you touch them. Now, okay, Mouse now, next law. How does one get Tum'ah? First possibility is by touching the flesh. By touching flesh of a certain size, you get the Tum'ah. The other possibility is by carrying the flesh even without touching it. And, and what would be carrying the flesh? That would be, let's say I take like a, like a, a, wee, a, barrel, a barrel or something and I put the, or somebody else puts the animal in it. And then I carry the barrel or I carry something in which I'm not directly touching the animal, but I'm still supporting its weight. That also causes Tum'ah. And that would be the other basic rule. Now, in the text, if you look closely, it seems like by touching the flesh, the Tum'ah only goes on the person's body. But if the person carries the flesh, it goes also on the clothes. And that's what you were, you were talking about. That this is also for... Today we are Tama anyways, so it's not as relevant. Tum'ah, now here's one more, and, and that pretty much summarizes the laws of uh, kosher and non-kosher and Tum'ah and Tahara. That's all I'm going to really say for this part of the Torah. So let's now step, take a step back and talk a little bit philosophically. First of all, how does this apply today? So the first thing you have to understand about Tum'ah and Tahara is that they do not represent a spiritual defect. They do not represent any problem in my soul. So that if I am Tameh, if I have no reason to go to the Mikdash, I have no reason to become Tahor. Becoming Tameh doesn't mean I did a sin. 
doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me. All it means is that I am not in a position to go to the Beit HaMikdash or to partake in things that are tirumah and, and, and uh, uh, ma'aser and things that require purity to, to be partaken of. But they do not, re- so they do not represent a, s- a state of sinfulness. So if I'm in a state of impurity, there is never an urgency to purify myself unless I want to go to the Mikdash. That's the first thing. Today that we don't have Mikdash, n- all of us are impure. And none of us are in a state of urgency to purify ourselves. Now, when was this? It's very interesting because we saw, obviously, this, this, uh, this idea of that the fact that Tumah is not a state of impurity, that's, that's not a defect. People, most of the time, people miss it. They think that they need to become. So what happened actually is, for example, with Nida. I'm sorry, but how are we impure right now? Because all of, us have been, but all of us have been in a position where we've touched something that is impure. There is so much, technically okay. there is so much impurity that all of us have been in a position to be impure, namely because the highest level of impurity, which is when you touch a dead animal directly, you can only be purified when you have the, the, the uh, no, not the even red the, the red cow. Oh yes, correct. So for the red cow, since we don't have the red cow, all of the tum'ah that surrounds touching a dead corpse, that all of it... And have, you ever, have you ever carried a dead body? Have you ever helped carry the dead body in the cemetery? So. Yeah. We all do it. I think so. That's, that's if somebody, if somebody is tameh, okay. if somebody tameh, touches somebody else's body, it becomes also tameh. If you go to a cemetery, um, I don't know the, the laws, technically how all yes, that Because works. cemetery, you also tameh, you carry it. So there are other rules. I don't want to get into all the rules. A, because I don't know them so well. And B, because it's a lot of technicalities. If you are in the same room as a dead body, yes, you get you it. so that it. becomes an issue. So if you're in the but hospital, if you enter the hospital, that's why Kohanim have this whole issue of a Kohen going into a hospital. It's because of this. Now all of us are, have become Tameh. If we've ever been in the hospital at the same time that somebody died in the hospital, we're that's tamay. it. Okay. So, so there's no... Everybody is Tameh today, but there's no urgency to get rid of it. Now, when was this... When did people... Naturally, because of the way like we have the primitive brains, we, we forget the fact that this is just a legal status. Being Tameh is just a status which tells me I can't go to the Mikdash right now. Correct. It's not something disgusting. Yeah. yeah. It's not something like disgusting or something like that. When it came to Nida, female Nida. That's different. No, no. It's not different. It's not different at all. There is no physical, there's no problem with the woman in her state of Nida. It's a time in which they do not engage in, in marital behavior, right? But we had a tradition, let's say in Iran, that women would not kiss the Torah when they're nida. Correct. Or they would not touch, they would not cook when they're nida. All of that is extra. All, of that, is, all, all of that has, is, is completely non-Torah. That's all more superstition. None of that has any relevance to the way the Torah is trying to lay out the system. So that's just an interesting tidbit. Um, it's, it's just a legal status, including Nida, it's all just a legal status. There is no prohibition for a woman in a state of Nida to kiss the Torah, none of that. Some women, I think, wouldn't even come to Kanisa. They would be afraid to pray, they'd be afraid to, to, to do anything holy when they were Nida. That has nothing, but that's not, that's completely unwarranted. Okay, now, final thing, uh, I'm going to do a 10 minute, just a, just a philosophical idea that I was thinking about a lot this week. Um, but it's going to take some time to build. Okay, so just bear with me five five minutes. Could we go ahead? No questions. 
No, five minutes, no questions. No, because it's also... Because the... But no, already, because, well, my heart is already broken. We're, we're over an hour, so I'm just getting your permission to extend the class a little. One of the, the real themes that we've seen over and over and over again is to separate between what is holy and what is profane. The whole idea of kedusha. what does kadosh mean? Kadosh means separate. And we see this word kedusha is applied to many things. For example, the Shabbat is kodesh, it's separate. God is kadosh, he's separate. And, and this whole idea, of, and it seems like our separating, lehavdil, the separating that we do, is for the end game of uh, achieving kedusha, which is separateness. Sing, uh, being, being uh, uh, not spiritual, what would be a good word? Being uh, um, a good word for kedusha, being sacred. Being separate in a way that's sacred. Being separate in a way that is sacred. Now, where does this idea... It, this idea is a lot deeper than you would think. It seems like part of the process in, in achieving Kiddushah is to constantly be distinguishing between this and between that. Between what is holy and what is unholy. And it applies to many things. We see Kiddushah, as I said before. It, you see it most applied in the realm of the, sex, in the, of the sexual things, where there are certain behaviors that are off-limits, where there are certain people that are off-limits. You see it applied to food, in which there are certain foods that are off-limits. You see it apply to what we touch, there are certain things that we shouldn't touch if we are to enter the mikdash. And we are told as human beings to constantly be making these distinctions. And by making these distinctions, that will bring us to holiness. But I was thinking, what is it about these distinctions directly why are distinctions, all distinctions, so essential for us to achieving holiness and potentially closeness to the divine? Because it seems like the process is we distinguish between Tameh and Tahor, and once we do that, we can then approach the divine. But if we do not distinguish between Tameh and Tahor, we're not allowed to approach the divine. So it seems like this world of distinctions is, is a prerequisite to our approach to the divine. So to understand why distinctions are so important and they relate and they so closely elevate us to the level and to the approach of the divine, we have to go back to the creation of the world. Okay? Do you remember how the, we laid out the story of creation, how creation occurred? So the, the way it started was that the world was, the world was all just matter. All of the matter and the energy that was needed for the world was already there on day one. It was created in the first Pasuk. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All of the matter was then created. Now, was it in a state of livability? No. But as we know, it was completely desolate. There was, nothing was able to live there. In the coming days of creation, in the six days of creation, there was a process of organizing all of that matter. It was done through speech, because speech represents the beginning of human intelligence, or beginning of intelligence in general. Ideas that take form in the human mind, they manifest themselves in the world through speech. So God used the intelligence, or, or His divine intelligence, 
to then go through a six-day process of ordering all of that matter into an organized system in which life becomes possible. So on, day, on, on the first day, he separated between light and the dark. And on the second day, he separated between the atmosphere and what was below. The third day, he separated between the earth and the waters. That allowed vegetation to grow, and then that allowed birds and fish to grow, and then that also allowed for animals to develop, and then ultimately, God then instilled human beings with the intelligence of their own. But in creating the world, God took what was a chaotic and unorganized mass, and through divine intelligence, ordered it day by day by day, until the... the, the Creation had become so organized and so orderly that it created room for life. But God didn't stop there. Because then came the Shabbat. And God also separated the Shabbat. He did one last ordering, and that was the creation of the Shabbat. And what that meant, by separating the Shabbat, God was basically saying, all of this creation that I have made is purely material. But... There's one last distinction I have to make, which is essential to the human beings which I've just created, and that is that this world is not just a material place. There is holiness beyond the material. There is spirituality, there's a spiritual realm that is beyond the material, and that's that last organization, that last ordering that God had to do. And once God did that, after the seven complete days were done, everything was created, everything was complete. We had the order, the distinctions were all put in place to make the world an orderly place. The chaos was turned into order. And for the human beings that were just brought into the world, the idea of the spirituality has also been introduced, which allowed human beings to see this creation as more than just something material and to start being able to look up to God, to have a day where they would pause their work, their work which doesn't really distinguish them from animals, to stop their work and to say, you know what? There's more to life than work that I could live in a spiritual way and that may get me closer to God. In the process of building up to the Shabbat, there was a lot of distinctions that were put in place. There was a lot of ordering of the reality. For example, one of the distinctions that were put in place was the difference between humans and animals. Animals, humans were no longer animals. They were more intelligent than animals. By, by divine design and that was one of, the, one of the most probably the most fundamental distinction that God made but you could see the distinctions and the intelligibility of the system was created through God using that divine intelligence into ordering what was a chaotic world now all of a sudden we come as human beings and we are inhabiting God's world and we can take two approaches to living in God's world we can admit to God's creating things in an orderly way or we can deny that God ever created the system in the first place. We can be materialists or we can be people who believe in, in, in Hashem. Okay? I always say that there are only two ideologies. There's a materialistic ideology which sees our world as just a random amalgamation of matter with no ordering, with no divine design, with no intelligent design, or you can see the world 
as a world that's guided by Borei Olam in a very specific and intelligent way. Now the whole creation story that we laid out is to show that the world is the second. That it's not just a random gathering of matter. It's not just an unordered mass of material. It's a place that has been ordered by a creator. So then what do we do when we take it upon ourselves to make distinctions? To say, you know what? This animal is not for me. But this animal I could eat. Or this type of behavior is not befitting of me. But this behavior is. What am I admitting to? I'm admitting to the fact that I inhabit a world in which certain distinctions and certain divisions were already made by a more intelligent creator. When I go and I keep kashrut, when I go and I maintain sexual purity, I am tacitly admitting that there are certain rules that were put in place by a divine intelligent creator that there's a certain order that was created in the chaotic world that because I believe that God had made that order, I am now looking to maintain that order. By making these divisions, by living a life of Kiddushah, what we are essentially trying to do is maintain the divine order that was instilled into creation. And once we do that, once we admit to the fact, once we maintain the divine order that was instilled in creation, we are also admitting that this world was created by an intelligent creator, and only once we take that step are we allowed to approach God. Now this whole philosophical idea, it explains a lot of what's going on in the world today. One of the things that I can't understand is why the world today is trying to do away with the distinction between male and female. Do you know about this? Do you know in popular culture how the distinction between male and female is being done away with? Or the distinction between man and animal, where sexual behavior is just permitted across the board. There's no, no constraints on sexual behavior. What, what does that stem from? Doing away with the distinction between man and animal. So my theory is that this all stems from which ideology? The God-centric ideology or the materialistic non-God ideology? It's the materialistic ideology. And why does the materialistic ideology devolve into a doing away with the distinctions which we find self-evident? Because the materialistic ideology does not think that there was a divine creator that intelligibly ordered things in their proper place. In the mind of an atheist materialist who doesn't believe that there's intelligent design, the world is just a random collection of matter. There's no difference between a man and a female. We, can, we, can, we decide what the difference is. Because there is no divine intelligence which has already decided that for us. We do away with distinctions because we don't believe that God made those distinctions in the first place. For those who believe that God did make the world with distinctions, we hold those distinctions as a way of maintaining the beautiful order that God created. So I see the kind of the doing away with distinctions that we're seeing in society today as a kind of rebellion against God. It's a rebellion against the divine design that we see so evidently is, is created in the world. You know, God created separation between man and animal, so we are supposed to control our sexual desires and our and our desires for food. But society isn't doing that. 
Society has already bought into the materialistic worldview. So why should we behave any less than animals? Or any more than animals? Are we any better than them? Has, is there any difference between us? We are just glorified animals. So let's behave like them. In our sexual behavior, in our food. And, and what about the distinction between male and female? Well, that's one of the most glorious and brilliant distinctions that God put into the world. But if you don't think that a divine, intelligent creator has put that distinction into the world, then I don't care for it. If I'm in the mood, if I have the desire for this or for that, whatever it is, I'll just go for it. Because there is no order. And I think slowly the non-materialistic worldview, what it does, the end game of all of this behavior that we're seeing predominantly coming from the left wing these days, that worldview, as it slowly chips away against the world that God created, the divine, beautiful design and order that God created, it ends up taking us back to day one of creation. It's not a recipe for a successful world. If we want a successful world, we need to maintain this holiness, these distinctions. We need to maintain the distinctions that God created in the, divine rea in, in the reality, with His divine intelligence. And that's, I think, the deeper philosophical point behind all of Sefer Vaikra. All of the laws of Kiddushah stem from this idea. Now, that's just a broad idea. Now, once we learn the specifics, we can pinpoint how each one is important and ties back to the divine order that God created. Well, I already said a few of them. Like, controlling what we eat separates us from animals that don't control what they eat. And that shows God that, God, I know you created us in this distinguished and intelligent way. And I'm going to behave as if I'm inhabiting that reality. Let us not fall for the traps of the people who are inhabiting a different reality. A reality in which there is nothing sacred. There is nothing distinct. There is no divine order that was created. And hopefully if we can avoid that, we can also continue living in the beautiful world that God created without messing it up. Amen. 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 Amen.